I've said it before in the House of Commons, I've said it many times, like, we need to apply human rights and international law equally, regardless. Forgotten Corner Podcast would not exist without our listeners. If you enjoy the work we are doing on this show and would like to support further, please consider a donation through our Patreon account, patreon.com backslash forgottencornerpod, or visit our website, forgottencornerpod.com. Welcome back to the Forgotten Corner Podcast. We acknowledge that the Forgotten Corner occupies unceded Indigenous land. We acknowledge that the Blackfoot Confederacy never surrendered its land in the signing of Treaty 7, but agreed to share it. The Forgotten Corner sits on Treaty 7 and Treaty 4 territory, traditional lands of the Siksika, Kainai, Pekani, Stony Nakoda and Sutina, as well as the Cree, Sioux, and the Soto bands of the Ojibwa peoples. We also honor and acknowledge that we are on the Métis Nation within Region 3. The Forgotten Corner is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, and if you'd like to check out other progressive podcasts from across the country, do click on the link that we provide in our show notes. You'll find some really great uh, pods on there, um, just like, uh, you know, uh, Tech Won't Save Us, like the guest we had last week. Um, anyways, uh, my name is Scott Schmidt. I am the co-host here alongside my co-host, Jeremy Appel, who's officially coming to us from the capital city of Alberta. Mr. Appel, how are you? I'm uh, quite well, quite well. Um, well, I'm uh, I, so uh, I, I guess, yeah, I think our listeners know I'm working on a book. You're being sued. Um, I've heard that all week. Oh, yeah. Well, Lawsuits. well actually, um, our guest today, um, we is were actually suing washing... you? What? <laughs> our guest today is suing you? Yeah, well, well, not yet. I, I, I didn't want to ruin the surprise, but our guest <laughs> is the food professor. That's, oh, Thank goodness we've been trying to get this guy for weeks. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna hash it out um, on the podcast. Wait for it. Admittedly, um, I like I don't spend too much time on Twitter anymore because it super sucks there. But like, I kind of got a like a peripheral view of your feud with food, professor. And like, I saw Eric tweeting a lot. Like, first of all. Like I get that this guy was, you know, pay, uh, under the thumb, so to speak, of uh, what was it, Weston? Yeah, yeah, right. he got a grant from them, uh, yeah. which he says no big deal because That's no BG NBG because yeah. because it was for his students. It was it was for the purposes of higher education, um, but for some reason he put it on his CV. So you know. So, anyways, he's mad at you, like officially. Like I see, uh, oh, he's you're so being, mad. It's you're great. being like bot trolled and stuff now. Yeah, well, there is some like Alberta NFT ape account that is uh, one of my prolific uh, trolls that he was like retweeting. Um, and uh, no, it's great. He, he, I, I think it ended yesterday because he blocked me and then he tweeted and then deleted a tweet um, uh, calling me a pseudo blogger. Saw that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm not sure what that means. Um, and... How can you be a pseudo? Anyways, it doesn't matter. Oh, he said I was making up him threatening to sue me, even though I posted the DM where he threatened to sue me. Um, I think it was like a number of lawsuits were coming your way. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, anyways, um, we should probably get on with this show since we have a pretty special guest today that is very patiently sitting here <laughs> listening to us talk about future lawsuits. <laughs> 
And yeah, I'm not good. the guest that actually is going to sue anyone. <laughs> we're pretty, I think we're pretty safe there. But Jeremy, why don't you introduce today's guest? All right. Well, actually, today's guest is my uh, member of parliament, um, which is quite exciting. Not we're Scott's probably not going to get my member of parliament on the Yeah, he would so. never talk to us. Um, he's a big baby. Um, but uh, <laughs> he's a fan. He's a fun guy. Yeah, I mean, we should get Glenn Moss on. If we wanted to, if we ever have like a super hardcore pro guns podcast, I bet he'd come on. Like, under (laughs) if we lied and like said that was the premise, we could probably get him on. We'd have to use some. Yeah. Oh, he'll talk about guns to anyone. He does not (laughs) like you from before, and he's you know. So, anyway. Yeah. Um, But anyways, so our guest today uh, is my member of parliament uh, here in Edmonton, Strathcona. Uh, Her name is Heather McPherson. She is also the NDP foreign affairs critic. Uh, so joining us today uh, to talk about uh, various topics, uh, including the war in Ukraine and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and her own uh, sort of backstory uh, is Heather McPherson. Uh, thanks for joining us, Heather. Of course. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, if you... Um, and some of our guests have heard the show before they come on, but we'll forgive you if you haven't. But when we have guests on, it's always uh, a little bit of life story time. So we like to get, let the listeners know uh, a little bit about who you are. And of course, you're in the public eye, um, but you're obviously seen uh, in, in a politician's light at all times. Mm-hmm, and probably mm-hmm. not a lot of people get to sort of dive into who you are and, and where you came from. Um, so can we kind of just go back and get a little synopsis of, of, of your life? Like I know you were born and raised in Edmonton, so you're a, your hometown, uh, uh, politician, but, uh, I'll let you go. Yeah. I mean, um, I can tell you a whole bunch of stuff or I can tell you a little bit. So you just tell me when it's, when, oh, we do when work. I filled up the tank, you keep going, you go and we'll tell you if it's too much. <laughs> Remember <laughs> politicians can talk for a really, really long time. You're not our first roadie. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, of course, I was born in Edmonton. I mean, starting off at the beginning, uh, I went to school in Edmonton. My parents are from Edmonton. So I've been here for a really long time, of course. Went to U of A, got an education degree. Um, and then actually, I didn't teach in Edmonton with the Edmonton Public School Boards. I actually taught around the world. I predominantly in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, Mozambique, Uganda, uh, Tanzania, Kenya, uh, different places, and kind of got... Um, Got more involved in the development, the international development, sustainable development work. Um, Huge priority for me has always been the education of women and girls, uh, you know, making sure that that people in in other parts of the world are given the same opportunities that we have here. And yeah, so then when I came back from from that, I had kids. I have two kids now. all I've ever had really (laughs) I have a son who's 15 a daughter who's 17 they're awesome um yeah I'm married I have a dog who's brilliant and yeah for a long time I worked within the international development sector a big focus of of mine was always on um the sustainable development goals the millennium development goals I'm really interested in how we use indigenous knowledges to to achieve the sustainable development what the what those knowledges look like in practice um how we decolonize some of the things that happen around the world that we need to have some of those discussions but have always been really really important to me and honestly like I I feel like I my whole life I I'm the middle I have two brothers one younger and one older they're they're awesome but I think I had to like 
kick and scream and fight all the time, all the, the time yeah, right. to survive with these two brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I have this like really thick stripe of that's not fair and we need to fix that. And and what are we going to do? And and maybe it's a little bit of that Scottish pragmatism. I don't know. Um, so I often, I often your... struggle because I want to get to that part where we fix things, where we make things go. Right. Where was it your family like when you were a, a kid? Were your parents politically engaged at all? Not or... at all. No, not at all. I, I think it's actually I, I kind of laughed like I feel like I had a longer way to come to become a new Democrat. Like, of course, being a new Democrat in Alberta isn't always the easiest, uh, particularly federally. Um, And my family was was pretty conservative. I mean, you know, back back when I was young, pretty much everyone in, in, in Alberta was, um, my, my mom and dad weren't terribly political. They're very, very shocked that they have a daughter who's a member of parliament. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't something I had gone to school for or planned for or thought that was, was, was my future. It it was a, a little bit of a, of an accident, to be honest. So just to rewind slightly, how do you go from being a teacher to working in international development? I think because I was doing the whole teaching in sub-Saharan Africa, so I was seeing the, the problems with the education system. I was seeing some of the issues. So when I came back, I went to University of Alberta and did my master's. It's this like long um, theoretical and cultural studies in education, you know, and I worked with some really cool professors. Dr. Ali Abdi was one of my profs. You know, I had these Lynette Schultz I worked with. So there's some really cool profs that I worked with. Um, and it just started me down that path, really thinking about how, it, it, you know, education is is key, but it's the systems that are in place that are that are broken that we need to fix if we're actually going to deal with the inequality, deal with the injustice, deal with the fact that there are people around the world that where women and girls aren't going to school, where, where things aren't um, aren't equitable. So when and how did the actual idea to go to Africa to teach come up? Like when you started out to become a teacher, was your mindset, oh, I'm going to teach in rural Alberta or whatever, and just kind of evolved? Or how did how did the whole like, now I'm in Tanzania? Tanzania. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you know, honestly, I think, like many people in the middle of my university my first university degree I thought I'm going to take a gap year I'm going to go somewhere I'm going to boot around a little bit I like traveling I've I've, I've done a lot of traveling so I, I liked it uh, so yeah so I I actually in hindsight it's pretty hilarious because I mapped I got this map of Africa and I sort of started myself in Harare and then I was going to end in Nairobi but there's like whole swaths of that that don't it's not possible. That's not a possible path. But, right. you know, you can make any path possible when you have a highlighter and, and you're sitting in like Dinwiddie's right. looking at it. Right. Um, so so I went there on a on a, you know, a gap year, basically, um, to 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 kick around a little bit. And that sort of changed the direction of of my life, I guess. I traveled a lot when I was younger. I was a swimmer. Um, and so I, I traveled with the um, with my team to different countries around the world. So. I think that also got me going a little bit. I actually uh, just learned recently that David Egan also taught in Africa. Oh yeah, yeah. In I had a conversation with him about that. Yeah. Oh, look um, at you uh, making uh, connections for other people there, Jeremy. <laughs> but <laughs> um, so, so was this this international experience? Did that sort of inform? And then working in international development, was that sort of how you got uh, politically involved and sort of realized that you were 
um, you know, more to the left of center than uh, perhaps a lot of your neighbors and, and, and family were? Yeah, I, I think so. I think that was a big part of it. Um, when I came back, I started working for the Alberta Council for Global Cooperation, which is an advocacy group that represents about 70 orgs in, in Alberta. And so I spent a lot of time in Ottawa. And I was spending a lot of time trying to talk to the government about what we wanted them to change, what we wanted them to do differently, um, what that would look like. And remember, that was sort of, that would have been around what, that what, Harper time. Okay, I was so, going to say, which government was that? Yeah, okay. Harper. Yeah, so it was... It was um, Harper. And then, of course, 2015, when Justin Trudeau was was elected and, you know, we got the whole tapping of the chest and the Canada's back, uh, which has proven to not, in fact, be the case whatsoever. But throughout that, I was in Ottawa trying to work with the government, trying to work with Global Affairs Canada, CETA, whatever, whatever the case may be. So I think that was part of of that that switch and then I volunteered I mean I was somebody who who knew that I was new democrat like I knew I was a new Dem democrat I but but in the in the side of things where I was on the EDAs and I would put up signs and you know I would door knock and volunteer during campaigns not as in I was going to be a candidate and so when when Linda Duncan uh won the seat in uh Edmonton Strathcona I believe that was mm -hmm. 2008 uh, what 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 was your reaction to that? I I, I mean, because uh, again, uh, the 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 NDP didn't exactly at that time at least have like really a uh, a, a foothold in Alberta. So was this sort of the seismic event for you? Well, yeah, and to be perfectly honest, it was about the first time, um, you know, that so many folks in Edmonton Strathcona actually had a representative they'd voted for. You, you know, like for a lot of Albertans, there was. They had never been represented by by somebody that they had that they had voted for. You know, you look at our electoral system, but well, you get a hundred percent conservative seats. for so. Yeah, yeah. you get a hundred percent seats, but it's like that ignores 30, 35 percent of the that are progressive, at least that, you know, and it's it's very highly conservative province. But it does our electoral system does lead to a lot of progressives sort of being without representation. A hundred percent. Like even when I was elected in 2019, there was just under 40% of Albertans that had voted for a non-conservative candidate and they got me <laughs> like basically from the Rocky mountains to Winnipeg, they got me in that 2019 election, which is, I mean, that's a, that's a big, 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 big uh, chunk air. of the world. That's yeah. right. How how daunting was that for you? Because that's you're now well, you were that was when you were sort of quote unquote a rookie MP, right? Like you were alone. Um, was that uh, overwhelming? Maybe not the right word, but how how daunting of a sort of a task was that? To yeah, like it was. It did. It did feel a bit weighty because, of course, there was. I mean. There's a pretty, as you can imagine, there's a pretty steep learning curve to being a member of parliament. Like nobody knows how to do this job. <laughs> like I didn't go to member of parliament school. You know, there isn't a way to uh, to sort that out. And and then there's all the the uh, the sort of other stuff, like the way that you have to sort of work with your colleagues across the across the aisles. You have to work with people in different parties and and how you strategize around committee work. And you know, there's a whole bunch there. So yeah, of course, it felt a bit weighty to know that. You know, if anyone was going to speak about coal mining in the eastern slopes, it was going to have to be me. If anyone was going to speak about um, Wood Buffalo, you know, it was going to have to be me because there wasn't going to be another member of parliament that was going to, you know, talk about women's rights or, 
right. all these things that are so important uh, that Albertans care about. There wasn't anyone else. And I mean, to be fair, I, I got lots of advice and lots of support from Linda Duncan, who has also done that, you know, has also had that that role as the only one. So so I, I did have some support on that, too, from Linda. And what, when Linda announced her retirement, uh, what made you decide to run to replace her? So a few things. First of all, Linda had asked me a few times to run. She first asked me to run in Edmonton Centre um, quite a long time ago uh, because she wasn't going to be retiring and she wanted somebody, you, you know, she thought maybe that would work. And I just wasn't interested in running in a riding I didn't live in. So, and my kids were young. I had, young, I had younger kids. So I said no uh, several times. Um I had a few folks that had, had asked and I and I didn't really see myself there. And then I, you know, honestly, at one point it was actually my husband who said, you can't keep, you can't keep going to Ottawa and criticizing the government. You can't keep um, saying things should be different without sort of getting your hands dirty, without getting in there. So, so for me, that was part of it. Another huge part for me was, was uh, I have a daughter and it, like, how can I complain about there not being equal representation in the House of Commons? How can I complain about women being at 30 percent? Um, you know, what's what's the very best way you can role model to your to your 14 year old daughter that she belongs at every decision making table there is um, than than throwing your name in the hat and, and taking the risk. Right. And so uh, Linda announced she's retiring what in 2019. Was it? 2018? I think 2018 because the election was in 2019. Yeah. Right. And so the 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 nomination. Oh my God, it's race... only three years ago, and it feels like it was a million years ago. Yeah, you you had the three longest three year period in history of time, though. So that's it's not yeah. your fault. <laughs> but um, we all lived a decade. So you decide to run. Uh, of course, you were challenged for that nomination by uh, Paige Gorsak, mm -hmm. who sort of uh, ran the sort of uh, left wing insurgent campaign uh great campaign did did you expect to be challenged for the nomination or have such a like strong challenger because you i mean you only won by like less than 20 votes right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah no i i think so i mean i think gosh like i said it's it's a really long time ago and and Paige ran this great campaign it was great and i think in a lot of ways what it did is it set up the federal it set up the the um federal NDP, like it set us up for the next camp for the campaign, the actual election campaign, like there was so much excitement on that, there was so much work done, uh, that I think it set it up for success as we as we went into the campaign, like we had way more data than we might have had if there hadn't been that challenge, way more um, folks were feeling excited about it. And, and frankly, got to know who we were like, I don't yeah I think that that Linda was Linda's got a you know she's a big personality she's really well known in Edmonton Strathcona um those were big shoes to fill right how what's the the nomination race like when you're going up against somebody who's essentially like a colleague and and you're sort of an ally you're your allies but now you're you're sort of adversaries in this part how do you navigate having to separate yourself from another candidate but also remain um both similar on the party uh platforms mm -hmm. and that kind of thing how did you uh go about doing that well you know it's i mean it's always it's always tricky because you especially for nominations not necessarily for for general elections but for nominations 
you both want, you know, you both want to make the the party better, the the country better, your riding better. You know, people are people are not getting into this for for the wrong reasons. I don't think so. It is it is like this this tricky thing where you you want to put forward your ideas. One thing I will say is I feel like it was a really respectful campaign. Like we all had platform ideas, we had thoughts, we we did what we could to bring our supporters out. You know, it's a race, and that's what we did. So so I I think. You know, I've spoken to Paige since then, and and you know, she's she's a pretty phenomenal um, activist. So, I'm, you know, she's going to be doing some some pretty remarkable things going forward. I'm not really sure. I haven't talked to her for a little while. It's been a while. So, I believe yeah. she lives in BC now. Does she? Yeah, like many uh, Albert young Alberta, <laughs> uh, you know, activists. See, why are um, people from Alberta leaving? She had, I don't know. Yeah, and how do we stop that? Um, I mean, we could get into that, but we won't do provincial <laughs> politics today. <laughs> well, honestly, there's some things the federal government can do too. Like there is some roles for the federal government in making and making that happen. So Paige runs this as an insurgent campaign. You win uh, barely. It was, is there a sense in which, uh, you know, this, this uh, the Gorsat campaign sort of pushed you uh, on certain issues, maybe a bit outside your comfort zone? No, I don't think so. No, I don't remember. I don't remember feeling like that that was that that was the case. Um, I will say that that to get elected in Alberta, I do strongly believe that new Democrats have to do a lot of work. And I think that, you know, as soon as that nomination was over, we hit the doors, you know, nonstop until the election. You know, you you look at some of the conservative writings in Alberta, they can win the election without even showing up. That's not how new Democrats win. And it was a tight race. You know, when the campaign was first started, I was in third place behind the liberals and the and the conservatives on on election night in 2019. We always laugh because the press, all of the press, went to the conservative campaign and they all had to run back because that's not the way it fell down in the end. Were like you... they, they just thought Linda Duncan was sort of like a, a, a fluke in that that with her gone, the, the riding would just go back to being conservative. Well, we don't have poll. We don't have polls or um, riding specific polling. So, so it's, you know, we knew in our team how much you know, what, what we had going into it, but did elections you guys, are up in I, the air. I said I wasn't going to talk about provincial politics, but in 2019, um, did was there any sense that sort of the uh, situation in provincial politics here and um, was that at all have an effect on how people were looking at the federal election? I mean, there's a lot of the two NDP parties are the exact same talk around here, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, we had we had lots of challenges because, of course, there's there's different priorities for provincial government and a federal government. And we had a lot. We both had an election. It's It's been interesting because in 2019, there was the provincial election in May and then, of course, the federal election in, in October. Uh, but even in 2021, we had the September um federal election and the October municipal election. So, again, we had like these these it's tricky. There's a different there's a different lens when you are a federal party than there is when you are a provincial party. Absolutely. Um, and I, you know, I I think that uh, there was per- this perception during the nomination race that you were sort of uh, Rachel Notley's candidate of choice, right? That that she would have, uh, I, you know, I don't think 
it's would be controversial to say that if Paige had won, there would be a lot of tension between uh, her and Notley, particularly as it pertains to the fossil fuel industry. Do, do, do you accept that characterization that you're sort of Notley's uh, not handpicked candidate, but um, preferred preferred candidate? Yeah, certainly not handpicked. I never spoke to her about it before the nomination. There, I mean, there was no discussion about. Um, yeah, well, there's no discussion with the provincial party before the nomination. That's for sure. Um, I did always find it a little bit strange. Like it did feel, and and it it did feel that perhaps the page wasn't really, um, you know, she hadn't been she hadn't been part of the new Democratic Party, right? Like she hadn't actually done the door knocking and the putting up the signs and and some of those some of those some of those volunteer roles that sort of make the party and uh so so yeah i don't i don't know i didn't talk to to rachel about that at all i do know that there were folks from the party that supported me which was great that was that was nice i tried to be at you know the provincial conventions obviously you're wanting new democrats to vote for you so you spend some time talking to them for sure but um you know, the, I mean, there are tensions between the federal and provincial party. Um, I, I, I think you probably may view them as uh, less, uh, you know, um, less uh, important than than the, the the commonalities. But I believe it was in 2019 where Notley said, uh, "I don't know if I'm going to support Heather McPherson. She has to like win my support." Um, was that something that came as a surprise to you? Oh, of course. Yeah, of course. Um, but but listen, like I I kind of feel like I think you're right, Jeremy. Like there is there is, you know, thousands and thousands of things where the federal and the provincial NDP align, right? Like there there's the vast majority of things where we align. And of course there's gonna be some differences. You know, you can't you can't have a federal government that governs the entire country or the, the a federal party that's that's wanting to govern the entire country um, that has the same priorities. It's just not it's just not possible. So there's always gonna be there's always gonna be those those spots. But frankly, I look at what Rachel Notley did on on the coal transition. I look at what Rachel Notley has done um, to protect our environment. Like she's done more than the liberals talk a good game, but they've done nothing. <laughs> they've literally done nothing. Um, you know, some of the stuff that was put in place, the very first carbon tax, of course, was put in place with Rachel Notley. I, I just, I feel like there's um, there's this desire to talk about the places where where there's there isn't agreement, and and I always I always find that a bit odd. There's when there's so many you, places where we you, where we see things the same you, way. Do you think that? in any way there's a, a need to talk about those differences when there's such a wave of uh, sort of narrative that there's this coalition of like the liberal NDP, ANDP coalition that mm -hmm. is constantly talked about here. And it's basically the campaign point for the UCP here going into May is that uh, you know, a vote for Notley is a vote for Singh and Trudeau. And like, do you think that there's any need to separate that from the federal party's standpoint? Do you guys pay attention to that? Do you feel any need to get involved and say like, this is silly talk or anything like that? No, I mean, I think what, what we're seeing is Daniel Smith is desperately trying to find someone to pick a fight with that she can win. And and we know Trudeau is deeply unliked in Alberta uh, for for valid reasons and also for some some not valid reasons, to be to be perfectly honest. Um, she's just desperately trying to pick a fight. And I don't know, from my perspective. 
why would I want to give her that fight? Like, sorry, sorry, Daniel Smith, you're you're running against Rachel Notley. Uh, you're not running so. against Justin Trudeau. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm sorry that she she that 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 is a scary proposition for you, but that's the reality. I mean, it's it's politics. Listen, she's 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 trying very much. Daniel Smith is trying to find an enemy that she can that she can hammer on. Um, I have no conversations ever with Justin Trudeau, but if I was him, I would say, why why pick a fight with why pick a fight with her? Well, it seems like somebody's told him that exact thing, whether that came from his head or the advisors around him. There's well, a lot of like, it, too, right? well, I mean, well, I, I don't think too much to fight back from his head. No, <laughs> fair comment. Um, when but so, so when Notley said, well, you know, I may not support Heather because you know the federal NDPs against Kinder Morgan. Uh, well, I mean, what was your response to that? Did you just sort of brush it off as like, well, yeah, that's politics, or did did was there a sense in which you felt kind of um betrayed? A little bit of both. I mean, it's not it's not fun to get to get that information, of course. Like, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie. I look up to to Rachel. I see her as a as a strong politician. So yeah, of course, there was some I, I, that that was not great, but it is politics. It is not. You know, it's not like my bestie didn't invite me to her birthday party. It is a little different than than that. Uh, so, I mean, if anything, I think my two brothers took it harder than I did. I mean, they their defense mechanisms all went into overdrive. And and frankly, it was a pretty short time, right? Like it was it was like about a week, and then she was like, "No, of course I'm voting for Heather McPherson." So it wasn't it wasn't really that big a deal. Yeah. Um. And now, frankly, it was like long sorry. ago. So when we think of when I think about it now, like that was like like you like you were saying, like the three years that was a decade. But yeah, ten years um, ago. It feels years like ago. yeah, yeah. And then of course, when we had the election in in twenty twenty one, you know, Edmonton Strathcona ended up being the seat with the highest vote count of any NDP member of parliament in the country. Like it's, I think it's 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 pretty solid now, and I attribute a lot of that to the work that that Rachel Notley does. I mean, I'm her. I'm her MP and she's my MLA. We share we share a riding. I mean, to be to be honest, I think Jason Kenny was also a really really great campaigner for me in 2021. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, yeah. That's not uh, that's fair comment as well. Hey, Jeremy, do you want to uh, get into the foreign policy stuff? Yeah, I I, I was going to say I think now would be a good time. Well. So yeah. 2021 election happens. Mm -hmm. uh, you win by a lot. Um, then you become a foreign affairs critic. Mm -hmm. Um, then a year later, uh, Russia, of course, invades Ukraine. Um, you know, here on this podcast, uh, you're not gonna have us disagree with you that this is an act of aggression and uh needs to be uh reversed. Um, of course, Edmonton, Strathcona, law Ukrainians there. Um, does that inform your position? The fact that many of your constituents are Ukrainian, have family there, and uh, you know connections to that country? Yeah, I mean, I think it does for sure. Um, it's interesting though. Like in 2019, when I was elected, almost immediately after being elected was when that PS752 flight from uh, Iran going to Ukraine was was shot down, and you know we thought at the at that time that that was going to be this like the big piece like this thing that was going to just 
take you know the the one of the biggest things that would happen as a in my political career because it was so it affected Edmonton Strathcona so much it affected the University of Alberta they were like it was it was such a thing and of course we're still we're still um, dealing with the aftermath of, of PS752. And then, of course, when I got elected in 2020, uh, sorry, 2021, that the day the election was called, Afghanistan, Kabul fell. Um, and we we ended up with just the, the horrendous situation that was that was happening there that continues on today. And then, of course, not even not even six months later, Russia invaded invaded Ukraine. Um I've been to Ukraine, you know, I, I I recognize that there are lots of constituents in Edmonton, Strathcona and across Canada, you know, I think we've got 1.4 million in the um, diaspora uh, that are Ukrainian, but I also think like, it's got a, it's got a bigger geopolitical implication, implication than just that we have Ukrainians in Canada. There is other reasons why I think that that this war has serious implications that we're not thinking about. Um, and, and even now, the way that that Putin is is weaponizing energy, um, even now the way that Putin is weaponizing food, uh, for me that is that is a huge a huge issue because if we look through the Middle East, if we look through Northern Africa, uh, where they're very dependent on on grain from Russia and Ukraine, uh, and then we look at a a global economy that is spending or global system that is diverting so much attention to Ukraine at the same time that we are now going to have, um, you know, chaos in other areas of the world is, it's a lot. There's a lot going on in foreign affairs. And so you, I mean, you've been a strong proponent of sending weapons to Ukraine, of sanctions against Russia, um, as has the Trudeau government. Um, and I think that's where uh, I think our disagreements uh, may uh, lie. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I, I want what, what? How is your position on, on on this conflict different from the government's? Yeah. So, from my perspective, actually, I I find it really difficult for us to get to arms. Of course, I'm a New Democrat. I, I I don't like the idea of sending of sending arms. Certainly, don't like the idea of Canada being directly involved in that conflict. However, I have spoken to a ton of folks, and I I've really thought this through. And I, you know, I I feel like one of the things. One of the things that we really need to think about with regards to Ukraine is where Canada can be most effective, what Canada can do that is that is those pieces that are most effective. So I struggle with us sending arms. We don't have that's not where we're where we're best situated. And there's a lot of discussion we can have about, you know, whether procurement should have happened differently in the past and, and what our level of contribution should be to institutions like NATO or or to our military. All of that's a, another conversation. Happy to talk about it. Um but I'm also thinking about how we look at the at the war in Ukraine. Where can Canada be best suited? Uh, we are demining experts. Why are we not doing all we can to help with the demining? Because that, in fact, impacts the food crisis. Because those are the fields that we are not planting in right now that are not going to be ready for this spring. Um, I've asked multiple times for the government to tie increases in military spending to increases in humanitarian and international development spending. I think it's absurd to lift one without the other because we know that when you don't invest in one, you res what results is conflict often. Um, I've also looked at how we can be providing services to Ukraine in terms of forensics. They need an awful lot of support on that front. Um, you know, what we can do in terms of training, how those roles can play and how Canada can have a better, um, a better impact there. That said, I think in a lot of ways, the, the 
the stories we're hearing, the information we're getting from Ukraine, the the the, the very clear, in my in my opinion, genocide that is being that is being um, perpetrated on the Ukrainian people requires a response, requires a global response. And you can talk about whether or not um, NATO was encroaching. You can talk about uh, you know all of the the imperialism that the United States has has um, engaged in over over decades and decades and decades, but but. In my mind, there is no doubt that Russia is not negotiating in good faith. They are not um, interested in um, international law. Uh, they have invaded a sovereign country, and and that has had some direct response, a direct response from other countries that that really had no interest in being in NATO. You know, you look at Sweden and Finland that were at 20, 25 percent prior to the invasion. Um, it's 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 some of these things are are pretty giant. I also think that when we're looking at Ukraine, we have to realize that that the world is changing. It is not a, a, a two-pole sort of, it is a multipolar situation. We do have, you know, an increasingly um, increasingly powerful China that that is is at the moment threatening Taiwan. We do have India, which, you know, is is a major world world player, which is also uh, having huge human rights issues, human rights concerns as they as the, the government is targeting religious minorities, women, you know, people from the Soji community. So I think it's all complex. And from my side, what I do differently than the liberals is I guess I'm I try to make them actually do what they're doing better. You know, they'll throw people on the sanctions list, but we don't see any enforcement of those sanctions. Uh, we've asked for a study in foreign affairs on sanctions because I don't even know how someone gets on the list. I don't understand why someone gets on and, and how those decisions are made and why it takes a really long time sometimes and why it doesn't. Um, I, I think targeted sanctions is, is key. I think the Magnitsky style sanctions are one of the tools that we should be using. We should be using more in Canada. Um, that's that's a long a long question on I, I can keep going if you want. I mean, it just seems sort of a little like again, Putin and Russia are doing a very bad thing that needs to be addressed and and we are in, in full agreement there. I, I think mm -hmm. we all agree that there's a just a ton of nuance when it comes to something like this. Um mm -hmm. but from a, you know, from an outsider's view of how our specific system works. We have, you know, foreign policy, and then we have foreign policy critics and whatnot. Mm -hmm. If everyone is in agreement that, you know, our best path forward is at least some level of support for Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah. Like, or support for, uh, like, and like instead of diplomacy, we're talking sanctions, weapons, these kinds of things. And, who's who's providing that voice where is that voice for sort of the exact other side like we're again like and like is there no way around this without continuing to prolong a war that is uh not just not just killing uh innocent people but it's hurting innocent people all across both ukraine and russia now right sanctions on russia are certainly hurting the russian people who have nothing to do with this war themselves mm -hmm. are being mm -hmm. hurt by any continuation of this and sometimes it seems like no matter who the party is here there's at least some level of rah rah let's does that make sense it it does and and in fact i kind of think that that you 
you know, I, th I feel a little bit, Scott, like you're looking for a place for those, for that contrast or that, that contradiction. And I, I, th I agree with you. You're not going to find that on this particular issue. I think all parties, you know, including the Bloc, including the NDP, including the Greens, including the Conservatives, all parties are, are sort of aligned on this. Now, now there will be variances on that. There will be things that we see differently, but you're, you're, you're absolutely right. There are things where there is a very clear contrast where there is a very clear direction on the on difference in the in the direction that different parties want to take i don't get that sense with with this particular with this particular conflict um and and i mean i think there's some reasons for that so do you believe like do you believe that the other or at least all uh, do you are you comfortable that all the other parties are doing this from the just strictly the mindset of this is bad for you. The Ukrainian people are being invaded and we have to, we have to get Putin out of there. Or like, do you trust that from everybody always um, when we're going both these things? I think it's a bigger, it's part of a bigger geopolitical thinking. I don't think it's just, we need to help Ukraine. I think it is, what are the implications on Poland? What are the implications on um, other regions of the world? I think there is a bigger piece there. So it's not just that, but I actually do feel, and, and perhaps I'm naive and perhaps I'm, I'm seeing the best in folks, but I do feel like when I speak to my colleagues from all parties, that, that, that we are all seeing this as the same way we are all, and it is not um, being done for the, the wrong reasons. Is that, yep. I, I guess what you're trying to sort of say, yep. um, you know, and I do still think that there is an important role for diplomacy, but, but you got to recognize, like at the moment, that the moment that that door is not open to us because of of some of the behavior that, um, frankly, that Putin has has undertaken. I mean, he announced he was Russia was chairing the Security Council at the same time that they invaded immediately after saying that they would never invade. You know, like the the the. the the honesty and the ability to the interest in collaborating and having that that diplomatic conversation does not seem to be there now to to i a hundred percent am not at all of those tables of course like i am a ndp member i'm a member of the fourth party and i may be the foreign affairs critic but i'm not at those tables so maybe some of that diplomacy is happening um I have said time and time again, I think our role in terms of building up our diplomacy and our relationships around the world is greatly diminished. The Canada hasn't developed these 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 important relationships. Um, you know, having six foreign affairs ministers in five years or five and six, I can't remember what it is, um, is not great. Not having diplomats working in some of the our most the the countries where we have the biggest relationships. It's not great. Jeremy, um, I just got one follow up and then I'm gonna let you go for a bit. But I just wanted to ask like is the approach you're take that we are taking as a country right now or as a as NATO or depending on how like macro or micro you want to make this mm -hmm. um is there a is there a point like if we're still here a, a year from now and now we're two years into this uh war invasion however whatever you want to label it mm -hmm. is there a, is there a line when like okay something something else has to give like what do we even think that there's a place where putin goes i've had enough i got to go home like yeah i mean it's such a great question i think it's what everybody's thinking about right because right now what's happening is civilians are being targeted and for you know the country of ukraine is being is being destroyed the people of ukraine are being murdered for sure um so so yeah it, it is a it is a is it, 
it is a tricky conversation. Like, is the most, um, is the thing that will cause the least amount of suffering to to provide the support for Ukraine so that they can get Russia out? Is that the best thing to do? Is there a place where we have peace talks? And 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 how can can a country impose a peace talk on on a sovereign nation that's been invaded? I mean, there's a there's a whole bunch of things there, and maybe there is a place in another year. I don't think we're at that place right now. I mean, I have deep concerns because I look at the the globe and I worry that if countries like Canada um, choose to use our official development assistance to rebuild Ukraine, and Ukraine will need to be rebuilt, it will need to be rebuilt with the help of the international community, uh, is that money that will come out of you know vaccinations in in Sierra Leone? Is that money that will that will that will come out of um, support for for women and girls in Afghanistan? Like these are these are really tricky questions that that we have to look at. Well, and, sure and I don't know. I don't know what one year will bring, Scott. To be honest. Well, uh, I'm sure you saw that video of uh, Christia Freeland uh, being asked by, uh, I believe, an official with an African Development Bank about this question that there's this sense in among African nations that all this aid that's supposed to go to them is being uh, taken and in, in dedicated towards the war with Ukraine. Meanwhile, Russia is coming into these African nations and offering to mm-hmm. uh, help them develop. And how do you reconcile that? And Freeland's response was, well, you got to just be more like Ukraine. Be you, you know, you have to build democracy like Ukraine did, um, which I'm sure you agree was horribly uh, condescending. And um, I, I, I suspect that's not your view. Um <laughs> But I want, I, I, you know, I, 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 I did want to ask because I, I, I read you, you said about Putin's like nuclear threats that this underscores the importance of um, recommitting to nuclear nonproliferation, right? Mm-hmm. In, in entering into these international treaties and engaging with them, like Trudeau's, you know, the first Trudeau did, right? He was, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, for all his flaws, he was a very, uh, I think he was a lot better on uh, global affairs yeah, than, than, than his son is. Um, but, and I, I was pleased to see you say that, but, I, but how do you do that if Russia's not at the table? In that we're we're essentially uh, ostracizing Russia from the international community, which I get, yeah. but right how how do you recommit to this the, the, these multilateral platforms if Russia is not at the table? Well, I mean, I think at this point Russia doesn't belong at some of these tables. You know, to be perfectly honest, like when we had COP fifteen in Montreal, I was opposed to to Russia being to attending. Uh, they are they are actively destroying um the ecosystem there you know so so it is a conversation about when when can they be there if they're not if they're not there in a constructive manner if they're not there um in problem solving way then i don't think there's any rationale for them for them being there um you know frankly Really, do we think that if there was a meeting on non-proliferation, you know, do we really think if if uh, Russia had shown up in Vienna for the for the first uh, state members meeting of the TPNW that that they would be an active or a, a, a rational participant in that conversation? Of course not. Of course they wouldn't be. Um, but I do have deep concerns that if we if we um, 
validate the the nuclear threat. Like if 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 the world looks at Russia and says, well, we can't do anything because they have a nuclear weapon, they're a nuclear threat. Basically, that that's like a that's like a hall pass for every every you know the the Irans, the North Koreas, the the folks that that don't recognize the rule of law and international rule of law. It's like saying. Yeah, just just uh, wave that flag, and all of a sudden we'll step down. I don't think it's a message we want to send. I don't think that's the right way we want to we want to think about it. Now, I also don't think that we need to look at Russia as as never participating in global discussions. I think right now what we're seeing is a Russia that is not participating, that is that is choosing to be um, to to go down a path against. Uh, you know, international norms, international law, human rights law, you know, all kinds of these of these um, norms, I guess, that we have. So so now, no, I don't think they belong at some of these tables in the future. Absolutely. Because Putin is not going to be the leader of Russia forever. That is not going to be the reality. But um, yeah, couldn't you say the same with the United States? I mean, why are they at all, all these tables? I mean, they had a nuclear agreement with Iran that was working successfully and then they just ripped it up because um i mean god knows why but um you know i think uh, we all know why the cheeto (laughs) yeah well the the in uh i mean the united states is the only country in the world to have used nuclear weapons and they use them to you know I, I mean, destroy uh, parts yeah, of Japan. Totally. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, couldn't you say the same thing of the United States? Well, you know, the United States isn't at any of those meetings. They won't even attend, right? Like they won't come to any of those meetings either. And in fact, what I see is a, is a the challenge I see for Canada is that we won't even participate. The Canadian government won't even participate. We didn't even send an election or an observation mission to Vienna for the TPNW. Um, and other NATO countries did, uh, you know, we saw Norway, we saw Belgium, we saw Germany, they were all there. And Canada wouldn't even show the the bravery of of, of, of being there as an observer. Um, and I I mean, I'm an opposition member in the Canadian Parliament, so I guess that's my my area of focus. I can I can very clearly look at at many of the things that the United States does and and the, I can I can be very, very critical about the history that that they have. Um, but our government has been abysmal on this. And it's also the government that promised not to be abysmal on this. You know, this is one of my big problems is Trudeau always says he's or sorry, Harper always said he was going to be a jerk and then he was a jerk. Trudeau tells you that he's going to he's on it and then he's a jerk then you know then he does the exact same thing which which is for me very frustrating you know i work a lot with doug roach on the disarmament stuff and and it is um yeah like we were we're set at 90 minutes to midnight right now sorry 90 seconds to midnight (laughs) yeah i guess you know just my disagreement with you on this is that I mean, if if we're going to be serious about nuclear non-proliferation, everyone needs to be at the table, regardless of uh, what their motivations are. And, uh, you know, I think that would have to include Russia. Um, but I, I, I wonder. Do you think it should include Iran and, and North Korea as well? Like, do you see that yeah. as, a, as a they should be at that table, too? Of course. Of course. Yeah, I, I do. Um, now. Uh, just one last thing about Russia, Ukraine, and then I want to talk about Israel, Palestine. Um, This is a hard issue to talk about with regards to Ukraine, but the issue of far-right extremism in Ukraine, of course, that's being used as a pretext by Russia 
for its invasion. Uh, you know, they say they're denazifying them. Well, I think Russia could also use some uh, denazification itself, but so could Canada. I have to say, it seems like most of the countries involved in all of this could use a little bit of that, right? Yeah, now. yeah. It, I mean, it, it, Scott, totally. you're down there. I mean, the things we hear about in southern Alberta, for example, they're pretty Loki Hallgard. Uh, yeah, disturbing. he's still he's still doing the plead guilty. Just kidding. I need a new lawyer. Not guilty. Rip, rinse and repeat. Guilty. That hundred yeah, yeah, yeah. percent. Anyways, I don't know if you've been following that, Heather, but that yes. was uh that was a case I was very interested in when I was down there, and it's it was just a case in point. Yeah, but um, that said, there are a lot of far right extremists in Ukraine. I mean, the Azov Regiment. Um, as part of the broader Azov movement is um, uh, far-right extremists. I uh, read a quote from you in in the CBC, uh, I think a year or two ago. Well, I guess it would be a year ago because two years ago there wasn't, Russia hadn't invaded, but um, saying that, of course, that we should uh, do our best to ensure that the weapons we send to Ukraine aren't going to these extremist groups. But... Um, I mean, how how do you do that when we're just sending more and more weapons to Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, I've asked a, a number of questions of the government because we also have an arms trade treaty that I don't think we've been we've been enforcing at all. You know, Canada has a terrible record of giving arms um, and them ending up in different hands, in the wrong hands. Like we do, we don't have a good record of tracking this. I mean, we say we won't we won't fund. Um, we won't provide weapons when when organizations or countries are feeling human rights issues but yet we won't stop selling to saudi arabia like yeah i agree with you there is some there is some real challenge in how we are providing um providing weapons to countries around the world including ukraine um i think that you're right there is there is a component uh, that of of the Ukrainian military that is far right, and that we should be condemning at every turn. Uh, but it is tricky. It is hard to know. I'm not on the ground. I don't have that level of experience. I trust to our uh, to our defense critic that she has a bit of a more fulsome look at that. But for me, it is something that we've asked for. I've asked for the the Foreign Affairs Committee to do some work on that. We haven't done anything ever on the Canadian Arms Trade Treaty and and our lack of enforcement there. That hundred percent needs to be looked at because, of course, you know, perhaps you know, there's some, there's different levels of what's being sent over there, of course, but but we have no way of knowing where it's ending up. We have no protections for that. Right, which which speaks to a broader issue. And, and just one last thing on Ukraine, because of course. I just keep answering that makes you have one more thing I noticed. <laughs> well, no, but this is because, of course, at the end of the day, this conflict ends with negotiations. It, it, you, right? It does. That's how all conflicts end. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I appreciate the, 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 that you want Ukraine to be able to negotiate on, you know, equal footing with Russia, right? And, and, and that requires to repel the Russian invasion. But, uh, you know, I guess at, at the same time, um, you know, Ukraine's calling for the return of Crimea. And um, that, to me, at, at this point, seems quite unrealistic. So at what point is this conflict just going to go on uh, forever because we're arming Ukraine. Ukraine wants to everything um, that was part of Ukraine pre 2014, not just pre 2022 um, to be returned. 
Um, at, at what point do we say, okay, enough is enough. We need, um, we we need some sort of peace, and we need some sort of uh, pragmatic arrangement um, where, um, you know, the for example, the territories in the Donbass are given not not given to Russia, but given some degree of uh, independence from the Ukrainian state. Right, they're sort of federated. Um, would well, to be honest, Jeremy, I don't think we <laughs> say anything it's not us <laughs> you know like I, I do think that there is something about having sovereign you know sovereignty over your own country i do think that 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 we are listening to the ukrainian population on this to some degree right like there is something about me sitting in my very comfortable office in edmonton and you, you know you sitting in your office and us talking about when's enough um i do think that's not that's not our conversation Really, you know, and I get there's implications because I do, I, you know, we are providing funds, we are providing weapons, we are providing material, all the rest of it. But, but I don't like the framing of it. Like, when do we say enough is enough? We don't get to say. <laughs> well, <laughs> to be I don't honest, mean, we just I, don't I, get I, to. <laughs> when I say we, I don't mean Canada per se. I mean the international community that's fueling this conflict. Um, of course through through nato but of course also um in through russia with the countries that support them like china and mm -hmm. iran and others uh, you know i mean at the end of the day uh, you know there does need to be negotiations there does need to be peace we need to end this conflict because it's killing so many uh ukrainians yeah um and and it is something I think about a lot because I think Canada actually could play a bit of a convening role there. Um, you know, there are there may be there could be a role there. Um, I, we've had some really great discussions how I think Canada needs to develop bigger relationships with our northern our our, our um, northern countries. You know, the the Nordic countries that we have in Europe. I think there are different relationships that we need to be building, and maybe there is a way for some of those discussions to be happening, um, or or certainly the offer to be put forward. For that but i but i will say and and uh you, you may not agree with me on this one you know and i and i know this is this is just storytelling or whatever but you know i have a piece of the shrapnel that is being that that one of the mps from ukraine gave me and i keep it in my desk in the house of commons because this was her eight-year-old daughter was in the bath when this rifle threw her house and and so i am trying to keep in my mind that it is it is up to the Ukrainian people to to decide, I guess, what they what they are willing to what they are willing to live with and what they are not willing to live with. So, of course, I want there to be a peaceful resolution. Of course, I want not a single other person to be murdered. Of course, I want you know children not to be stolen from from um, their families anymore. That we all do, uh, but it but does have to. We do have to work with you know Ukraine on. If somebody came and took British Columbia, would I don't know how would Canadians feel about? Well, we'll just let that one go. I don't know. There's there's bigger discussions I think on that. But I but I. So I we're do gonna... think it's not a simple answer in that in that we should just decide that now's the day. Like February 24th, 2024 is two years. We're over them. I don't think that's how it's going to work. That's not the way life works. And of course, it's going to end negotiation. No, but not... she gets the last word on that, Jeremy. <laughs> no, 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 I know. I, I got to talk just... about uh, Israel now and let, so we can yeah, let yeah, her yeah. No, that, that, that was my plan because I think it's a good transition because 
you have uh, drawn parallels uh, between the situation in Palestine and the situation in Ukraine. I think a lot of critics of U.S. foreign policy, myself included, would look at um, the United States and Canada talking about that we need this rules-based international order, that Russia has violated this rules-based international order by engaging in aggression against Ukraine, by occupying it. Mm -hmm. But then we have Israel, which has been doing this for far longer against the Palestinians, of course, on a smaller scale, but with similar geopolitical uh, ramifications. And the United States and Canada um, not just are okay with it, they're actively supporting it. Um, so, um, I, I, I mean, I was hoping you could tell me more about uh, um, sort of uh, your, yours and the party's position on Israel and Palestine, which I think has uh, taken a more pro-Palestinian uh, direction in recent years compared uh, with before. Um, mm-hmm which is something that I think is supported by the party membership. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I guess just tell us, what, what's your position on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and how do we uh, bring it to a resolution? Yeah, thanks. Well, and and I think you're right. Like, you talk about the the rhetoric we hear with regards to Ukraine, and I think you're 100% right. It, it, that, that, you know, that um, understanding is not applied equally around the world. But also, you know, we have others other um places as well like it's it it for me there is very very um you know racist tones to our foreign policy when we see one country differently than when we see than when we see another country you know i see the way canada responded to afghanistan you know how do you even justify saying 40,000 which is which is a significant number but how do you justify that against unlimited you know when we look at immigration um and uh, there's a line here but there's no line here to say nothing of the fact that there's no immigration schemes for for yemen for um degree you know all of these different places that are going through these these horrendous things we don't we don't give them near the space we don't give them near the airtime and i and i get it like like i said earlier we have a massive ukrainian diaspora i think we should be supporting ukraine um to that level i just think that we should also be supporting other countries um with regards to israel and palestine i mean I've said it before in the House of Commons, I've said it many times, like, we need to apply human rights and international law equally, regardless, you know, all over. We know Israel is an ally of Canada, it's one of our allies, but we need to, you know, we need to apply that that international law equally. And, and we are so far from that. Uh, to say nothing of the fact that the government has promised us a feminist foreign policy. You know, this is a government that claims to be a feminist government. If we had a feminist foreign policy, the way that we respond to some of these things would be so different. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, the other the other piece for me right now that I'm I'm deeply concerned with, I'm deeply worried about, is this is is the Israeli government right now and the 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 very sharp swing to the right that that I'm seeing the the um, you know the the silencing, I guess, or not the silencing, that's the wrong word, but the deterioration of some of those uh, democratic institutions within Israel, like there is, there's some real challenges there. And and I don't see that as leading towards uh, a more peaceful future for, for Israelis or Palestinians, to be honest. Right. Um, but in, of course, Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch and the Israeli Human Rights Group, Tzalem, and other Israeli human rights groups like Yeshdin have uh, characterized uh, the situation in Israel and particularly the Palestinian territories as uh, apartheid. 
I know you've been trying uh, to get the government to explain why they reject this finding, uh, which we've talked about before, and they just won't say. Um, but do you uh, accept that Israel is practicing apartheid? Well, you know, I think that this is the this is the role that I feel for me is most important. Like I need to look at this conflict and I need to be pushing. I My job is not to push the Israeli government. My job is not to, uh, you know, engage with with the Palestinian Authority. My job is to push the Canadian government. So that's that's what I'm doing. That's what I try to do. And I and I will say, Jeremy, like I do feel quite that you know, uh, uh, under sort of my time as the foreign affairs critic, I think we have been able to move um, the position we and we have been able to bring this up in the house and push the government. And and that's got to be my role. Like I have to be the one pushing the government. If there's a rationale for why they're not accepting that designation, I'd love to hear it. But they haven't. They won't even respond to it. They won't even talk about it. If there is a rationale why why they're still selling arms to Israel when we very you know clearly there is some challenges with that and that does not align with our with our arms trade treaty. I'd like them to explain that. I'd like to push them on, you know, some of the the voting they do at the United Nations that that is very offside with international law and humanitarian law. But and, you... and then, of course, the the work that needs to be done. I mean, we we have a number of things that we've asked for, but when we look at um, when we look at this current government and some of the decisions they're made, what is how do we how do we ensure that the Canadian government is 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 paying paying attention is the wrong word because of course they're paying attention but but what how can i ensure that mr jolie and others are 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 speaking for human rights and speaking for hum, humanitarian law and not you know using these different levels of of when it counts and when it doesn't i mean one of the things that's that's i'm interested in is you know getting does the Israel and Palestine are not signatory, well, Palestine is, but Israel is not a signatory to the Rome Statute. Um, Russia and Ukraine are not signatories to the Rome Statute. Uh, we should, if we are calling for a investigation with the ICC and the ICJ for Ukraine and Russia, we should be able to do that for the, use that exact same um, lens when we look at what's, at what's happening in Israel and Palestine, particularly when we look at things like journalists being shot um, in the head. Uh, you know, when we, when we look at attacks on press freedom, when we look at um, these illegal occupied territories, I think those are those pieces that we have to, that we have to look at. I've met with, with all of the groups that have that have um, designated it as an apartheid, uh, there is, from my perspective, there is clearly things that that are uh, that indicate that. I mean, I'm not going to say whether it is or not because I'm not on the ground, but I do need the government to tell me why they're not going to. And do you plan on going to the region uh, to see for yourself? I certainly would like to. Um, it's it's one of these things where there's a lot of a lot of places and not very much time in my life. So I'm not sure when that'll happen, but but I've I've talked to a number of different groups because I certainly would like to go. No, which which groups like human rights groups? Yeah, yeah, human rights groups, the government of Canada. Um, you know, I'd love to see some of what UNRWA is doing on the ground, some of the the work that they're doing in the communities. I'd love I'd love to be there and 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 visit. I I went there when I was younger, but not with the with the information that I have now certainly right and uh I just one last thing I wanted to ask because what what you're describing your position is uh you know to me uh pretty much in line with the consensus of uh you know just about everyone 
Um, you know, I think I would push a bit harder than you, but, um, you, you know, I, I think I'm in a position where because I'm Jewish, uh, you know, it's harder for uh, people to smear me as anti-Semitic, which is essentially what- And yet uh, they Jewish... still do. <laughs> yeah, but no one takes it seriously. <laughs> no, except I know. For, um, them. Uh, but I mean, that's essentially what Jewish Federation uh, here in Edmonton has done. I mean, they accused you of putting Jewish people in danger by uh, talking about the, the the you know targeted assassination of Shri Abu Akhla. I mean, how how do you respond to that? And has that sort of pushed you into maybe toning it down a bit? You know, one of the things that I think is most important for me is I don't want to cause any pain to to um, the Jewish community in Canada. And the, and one thing I, I will say is the Jewish community in Canada, of course, is not a homogenous homogenous voice. It's a it's a very diverse voice as any group would be. Um, so I I you know I I'm I'm trying very hard to to have that that balanced perspective. I am I I meet regularly with with um, Jewish New Democrats to to test if 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 you know the language I'm using, how I'm speaking, because I want to I want to make sure that I am not causing harm, that I'm not causing pain to the Jewish community. And and frankly, we know the Jewish community. Well, you know better than 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 anyone, Jeremy, that that anti-Semitism in this country, in this province, and in fact in our city, is rampant. And so I don't want to feed into that. I want to be able to to say. I call it human rights where they happen. I, 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 I want to be able to play the role of foreign affairs critic very, very well, but I also don't want to cause harm. I don't want to cause pain. And, and I think it's, it's easy to do that. It's easy to cause pain when you are a, um, you know, a white woman from a, with a certain level of privilege. I don't, I don't always, I don't always recognize my blind spots, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would just so you know, emphasize that the Jewish Federation of Edmonton and CJA, which is essentially, you know, all, all the Jewish federations uh, ultimately answer to, don't speak for uh, the majority of Jews below a certain age. I mean, I know that anecdotally just through people I know and grew up mm -hmm. with. I mean, a lot of them, especially with new government, are, 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 are growing uh, quite uh, impatient um, with all these talking points about how we're always the victim and that the Palestinians are just the no new Nazis. And, um, but um, I, you, you know, I just want to maybe circle that back to your position with Ukraine, because with Ukraine, you're saying that we need to just essentially do it. The Ukrainians want, right? Because at the end of the day, they're the ones who are being occupied, mm -hmm. and they're the ones who uh, you say are being targeted with genocide. I don't quite agree with that characterization, but I I get your point. Um, it checks off literally all the boxes. Well, but... and we, we can talk about that. I think we should in the future do an episode where we just talk about Ukraine because I am interested um, in, in in your perspective on that and other international. What issues, boxes but... aren't checked in Israel to Palestine? Right, exactly. And I mean, That's what I'd like when to it know. comes to yeah. Israel and Palestine, you're saying both sides, we need to bring together both sides, both Israelis and Palestinians are suffering, um, which, you know, I, I think is true. But you've also pointed out that the, 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 that the conflict is asymmetrical. Israel is occupying the Palestinians. Um, Israel is, I, I mean, you say, um, you know, there are elements that, that meet the definition of apartheid. I mean, they're practicing apartheid. That's what it is. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, uh, but, but I mean, I, I, I guess I, you know, I, 
I, like I, to me, there seems to be some degree of inconsistency with how you speak about Ukrainians who are being occupied and Palestinians who are being occupied and not, you know, and I think this is part of a broader issue of how Canada talks about um, the situation in Palestine versus Ukraine in in, in other conflicts. So I'm just wondering uh, how you would respond to that criticism. Well, I think we're seeing it all around the world, right? Like it's not just it's not just the differences there between Ukraine and Russia and Israel and Palestine. I mean, I think that that the whole thing is complex. Like, what do we do about China? What do we do about the fact that, I, again, I do believe that there is a genocide happening against the Uyghur people in China. I, I do. I do believe that I've, I've done, you know, we've, 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 I've, I've heard from witnesses. I've, we've done a study on this. So it's something I believe. How do we manage the difference between like our, our our massive trade relationship there, the need to have China on at the table if we are talking about climate change, the need to not isolate? Um, you know, there are all of these different things, and they're all very complex. Like I had a statement on India and the the attacks that are happening against. Uh, by the Indian government against Indians in, you know, Indian Muslims and, and whatnot. Like all of this is very complex and it's all a little bit of a dance. And so I try very hard to do that, applying it equally everywhere, but it's, it's, it's really difficult to do because yeah. it's, you know, there is different backgrounds. There is different contexts for each of these, these. And I would say because of the long-termness of the Israel-Palestine conflict, it makes it even more complex. Like the, the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict has been going on, some would argue for a hundred years or more, but really it's been the last year that we've, that we've dealt with it as an international community. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to tell you, Jeremy, that I'm perfect at applying the lens equally across the table because I'm not. I'm trying and I'm trying to figure out how to do that. And I feel like as as a political party, uh, the NDP is out on um, the issues happening against the Palestinian people more than more than any other political party is. Like, I think we've we've gone a long way as a party to 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 align with human rights law and international law. I, I do think that that's that's true. Um but yeah, it, 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 am I doing it perfectly? No. <laughs> so I'm just now we we want to be able to let you go. You've been unbelievably gracious with your time today, and and first of all, candid in your answers too, and I think doing your very very best to be as honest and and forthcoming about everything as possible. So we appreciate that. I want to say one last thing, and I'm let you guys have some closing remarks. But sure. um, closing guess- remarks. Well, this is like an Oxford debate. The reason I brought you all that, here today. Right, right, right. Um, but I guess just hearing some of the way we talk about some of these issues, like um, mm-hmm. it, tiptoeing, we, we it feels like from a perception point, my perception is like we're, we're tiptoeing around some of the conversations involving Israel-Palestine because we want to be sensitive toward uh, the Jewish communities that we are a part of. I was just participating in Shiva a week ago today um, so uh, very close to uh, some of the Jewish community myself. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But I feel like maybe like we've had a um, a member of the Palestinian community on our show who's uh, uh, lives in Edmonton. And I'm wondering if when we talk about Russia and Ukraine and we're so easily able to say this is genocide and this is wrong. And we can say so easily when it's China that this is genocide and this is wrong. And then as soon as it gets to Palestine, Stein and Israel, we start to tiptoe around it because we're afraid of what someone might call us, or we're afraid of who we might offend. And is that 
to me, that I, seems like a bit of a slight on the Palestinian community I, who is here, who is not yeah. getting the same sort of you guys actually are a victim of these things, apartheid, occupation, possibly mm -hmm, even mm -hmm. up to gusts up to genocide. And I still don't know what the difference is between what Israelis have done over the past 70 years as to what is happening now. But anyways, that's my last words. And I'll let you comment on that. So I think from my perspective, it's not that we're tiptoeing around. It's where can we actually, where can we do something? What can, how do we move the needle? How do we make change? How does that happen? Right. And so you're right. Like it, it is, it isn't black and white and maybe it should be, and maybe that's part of the problem, but where is those things where we can move the needle? How do I, as the foreign affairs critic, how do I move that needle? How do I look at situations across the, around the world and say, okay, what's the role I can play here? Like for example, Afghanistan, I can do, nothing right now in Afghanistan. Um, I can push the government on humanitarian carve-outs, I can push the government on MPs getting out of Afghanistan and immigration, but I can't do anything. You know, what can, can I move the government on their stance on Israel and Palestine to be more in line with international law? Can, is, is that where I can, where I can raise my voice, where I can do the work that will, that will get us, get us further along? Um, because you're right, there is, there is a different, there's different things that that we do in different areas, and I don't want it to feel like I'm like I'm tiptoeing, but I do, I do think it would be really dumb to come out all fire blazing for every single issue because it it is a little it is a little bit like it is the opposite of diplomacy. It is the right. opposite of getting work done, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe it makes you feel better at the end of the day to to have that moral high ground, but on the other hand, where what are we trying to achieve? This, this is the and, right. and it's a balance for me right because i there's before, no before doubt you're, that before I... you're elected you don't have to you're you know before you're elected you 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 don't not have speaking to... for anyone else exactly right no i get and, that and and frankly nobody's probably li nobody was probably listening <laughs> well, to me before i was elected anyway that's the that's the slogan of our show <laughs> no, ahead, I, 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 I just do want to say before we wrap up that I do appreciate um, the, the, the movement the NDP has made on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which I know members have been uh, asking for for a very long time. And it was good to see Jagmeet come out and say, here are, you know, I think it was 13 things that we want the Canadian government to do. And I would just uh, encourage you, and I, I'm sure you hear this from uh, other people, both Jewish people and Palestinian people, to uh, keep doing it don't listen to Sija. they simply don't know what they're talking about and they don't want to and um don't be intimidated and um yeah i mean just listen to what the international human rights consensus is um and and um and yeah i mean keep pushing and uh you know you will have support um from many jewish people not to mention you know every palestinian person um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I did also appreciate, um, our discussion about Ukraine because I, you know, I think, um, um, you know, uh, we have some agreements, we have a lot of disagreements, but, um, I, I it was, uh, it was a very, uh, enlightening discussion, I think. Yeah. Thanks. Well, yeah. And I, I mean, I want to listen to everybody. I want to have conversations with lots of folks. I think, you know, I'm super interested in this idea. I've been reading the, the I think it's The Art of Persuasion. I can't remember what the name of the book is, but it's all about the idea of finding, persuading people, bringing people along, you know, finding yep. ways to not do this, 
but to work find to, more common together. ground and then try to work on different. So I mean, I found the day's discussion um, and just listening to the two of you talk, just you're, you both were very, you know, open and and honest about your differences, but also invite like welcoming of each other's uh, opinions and things to say. So appreciate that. Yeah. Um, we really do. Thank you so much for being on the show. I can't believe oh, that was you gave us so much time. Um, <laughs> but that was that's really amazing of you. Um, before I want to go, I just we're just gonna I just want to say one thing here. Um, normally this is a time in the show where we thank some people that um help support our show, and I'm gonna do that. But I want to okay. talk really quickly just about one person who, um. Okay, so anyways, Doctor Roberta Lexier's mother, um, passed away last week and she was a, like second mother to me anyway she was a very she was an anonymous friend of our show she wouldn't let us ever mention her um but uh she was a member of the jewish community in vagina anyway very special and important person to me who i just wanted to say on our show that she just meant a lot to me and to roberta and uh we just love her and so to susan lex here thank you so much and i just hope you're resting peacefully anyways that's all i want to say Anyway, sorry for that. Um, sorry for your loss, Scott. That's terrible. Thank you. Anyway, um, to Farah Chaudhry, Nicola Dinicola, Chris Derwald, Dave Von Miller, Darius Beregard, you guys are amazing. Thank you so much for everything you do for our show. Uh, again, to Ms. McPherson, thank you so much for being here today. Really appreciate your candidacy. Jeremy, thanks for being here as well, buddy. Always a pleasure. I mean, right. is, what do you mean thanks for being here? This is our show. <laughs> Well, you know, sometimes it's hit or miss. No, but uh, thank you for being too, here, Heather. Of Heather. And yeah. uh, um, now that I'm your constituent, I look forward to uh, uh, giving you a hard time. Well, you can. Uh, we can always go and uh, grab a beer. We've got Happy Beer Street in the middle of the riding. 